so we're, we're working our way through the statement. Uh, Wellspring Church exists to make disciples of all nation, nations through gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered service, gospel-centered community. And this morning we're looking at gospel-centered worship. And the question is, um, why, why say gospel-centered worship? Why not just uh, Wellspring Church exists to make disciples of all nations through worship, service, and community? Why, why say gospel-centered worship? And uh, the, the reason is because all 7 billion of us walking this globe right now, uh, this Sunday morning, night, wherever you are, wherever people are in the world, all 7 billion of us are worshiping something. If you look at the, the trail of our life, the trail of our money, the trail of our time, the trail of our energy, um, it always leads to something. And whatever is at the end of that trail, and that trail never lies. Whatever is at the end of that trail of our time, money, energy, whatever is at the end of that is what we worship or who we worship. And it never lies. And so that is why um, uh, we, we call it gospel-centered worship because we believe at Wellspring, um, we believe, we're, we're persuaded that the gospel is not just the minimum thing that we must believe to go to heaven when we die. Rather, we believe that the gospel teach, uh, has the power to change our lives for the better now. It changes every part of our lives from the inside out. And so whether we're working or, or whether we're, we're playing or whether we're here together in worship, no matter whether we're hanging out with our kids, no matter what it is that we're doing, there is something deeper. Whether we're eating, it doesn't matter. What we um, What is deeper than that is that we're doing it for his glory. And that is gospel-centered worship. When I show up to work on Monday morning, I'm not, just, I'm not just there to earn a paycheck. I'm there to do the best that I can. And I'm not doing it just because my, my boss is there or my boss is looking over my shoulder. No, I'm doing it there because I'm using it as an aspect or as, a, as an avenue of worship. I, I'm spending my money, uh, sometimes on things that are fun, sometimes on a good meal. But I'm not, it, it doesn't terminate on that fun. It doesn't just terminate on the roller coaster ride or it doesn't just terminate on the food. It's deeper than that. It's a gift that God has given because he wants our, our joy. He is for our joy. And so that is why we say gospel-centered worship. We all worship. But for believers, it goes deeper than that. It is rooted in, our lives are rooted in, this gospel, this gift that God has given us. It's really illustrated well in, in the book of John, a story that you I'm guessing everybody has heard. If not, we're going to make sure we're all on the same page. But it's a well-known story about Jesus' uh, discussion with the woman at the well. So if you have your Bible, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And let me set up the story as we look at gospel-centered worship. Jesus is walking through Samaria. He's on the outskirts of a town, and he's tired. And so he decides he's going to sit down, but he sends his disciples on into the city um, to grab some lunch and then to bring it back out to him. And while that's happening, he has a discussion with a lady. And in doing so, illustrates brilliantly what gospel-centered worship entails, looks like. So John chapter 4, starting in verse 6. It was about the sixth hour, that is about noon, about lunchtime. It was about the sixth hour, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, if you've read this story or, or heard a sermon on it, uh, you know this, but um, this is not typical. You don't normally go to the well 
at lunchtime, at noon. Normally you go first thing in the morning. If you've ever been, if you went to Haiti with us a few years ago, I know many uh, have, have been from our church to Haiti, you probably saw this. Um, people, they had wells there um, that you would pump with your hand, and many people early in the morning would get up and the lady of the house, or sometimes if it's in kids, if they were old enough, they'd usually have two five-gallon buckets. And they'd stand in line, wait their turn, and then they would pump the water, <clears throat> usually in the morning for the day. And the reason that they did this in the morning was twofold. First, I mean, have you ever been out in the sun in the middle of the afternoon on a hot summer day? It's like 110 degrees. And you don't want to go to the well and carry water back home in 110 degrees when the sun is beating down on you. I mean, I go, I, I drive home at lunchtime during the summer, and sometimes I'll see people out uh, exercising in that hot summer, in the hot summer sun. And I'm, I, I'm hoping they get um, uh, heat exhaustion just to teach them a lesson. Like, th that's what happens. Like, I just want to teach them a lesson. And, and that's why you go in the morning. The sun hadn't come up yet. And that's why people normally go in the morning. But not only that, as I, as I uh, uh, said earlier, it, it, that water then is used for the day. They, they use it for the day. So that water becomes what they use to clean their clothes. It becomes uh, what they use to, to cook their meals. It's the water that they drink for the day. Um, that water is used throughout, throughout the day. And then they'll, they'll go back the next morning and they'll do it all over again. This lady <coughs> goes at noon. At a time when nobody else is supposed to be there because she's an outcast. She's not well-liked. She doesn't have any friends. She lives on the fringes of her society. She's there at noon. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the, the, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for me, or ask me for a drink, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You know this as well. You've been around Bible study at all, but the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. There was racism that ran very, very deep, unlike anything we've experienced in our lifetime here in the U.S. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They thought of them as half-breeds, traitors. They wanted no contact with Samaritans. They were so deeply hated. But Jesus, through in his divinity, reaches through every social norm, and he reaches out to this lady that has lived her life on the fringes of society. He breaks every cultural barrier to have a conversation with her. And he asks her for a drink, and she says, why on earth are you asking me? You're not supposed to like me. You're not supposed to have any dealings with me. And yet he, out of love for her, asks for a drink. He goes on. Verse 10, Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God. Stop right there. Most of the time when people talk about getting their lives better. Or, or having living a better life. If you've ever read a self-help book, you know that that book is going to include a list of things that you have to do. Uh, you got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You got to roll your sleeves up. You got to be more self-disciplined. You got to be better at, at being um, um, uh, strict in your diet. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. 
If you want a better life, if you want to live a better life, here are the things that you have to do. And if gospel change were the same way, then those who were more self-disciplined, those who were, who were more diligent, those who were smarter, those who were better at picking themselves up by the bootstraps would have a distinct advantage over those of us who are not. Those who are better at disciplining themselves would have an advantage when it comes to this to the, to the gospel if it was like every other self-help book. But Jesus said that's not the gospel. The gospel is a gift. And if it is a gift, then it is offered to everybody equally. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what your IQ is. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter where you live. If it's a gift... That everyone comes on level ground. It is equal for everybody. And Jesus says that this gospel is a gift. And it can even be received by this lady who has lived her life on the fringes because of poor decisions she has made. We're going to find out in a minute. The gospel is a gift for everybody. He goes on. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well to, uh, he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, if you drink from the water that I'm offering, this living water, you will never thirst again. Based on the stuff I read this week, our body is filled with about 50% water. We're about 50% water. And, and so it's no surprise that when we're out on a hot summer day, when we haven't had anything to drink, our mouth is dry, there is nothing that satisfies quite like a glass of water, quite like a drink of water. When we're out working in the fields, if you work on a farm or in the yard, maybe playing sports, Running, exercising, I mean, there is nothing that satisfies quite like a drink of water. When that water hits your lips, when it gets into your mouth, there's nothing that satisfies quite like that. Jesus says, if you'll take living water, you will never thirst again. Obviously, Jesus is not offering something physical. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, just like on a hot summer day, when your mouth is dry, nothing satisfies like water on your lips, like water in your mouth. In, in the same exact way, I have water that is for your soul. That just as water satisfies your mouth, what I have to offer you is satisfying for your soul in exactly the same way. But if you'll drink of this, you will never be thirsty again. What I am offering for your soul will be of such that you never thirst again. It will always, for eternity, for eternity be satisfied. 
That's what living water is, and that is the gift that I am offering to you. You will never, your soul will never thirst again. Your soul will always be satisfied. He goes on. Look at her response. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She misses it completely. And he's talking about something that's not physical. She had just right over her head. Missed it completely. So look at what Jesus says. This is an interesting response. It doesn't make sense on the surface, but I hope you'll see it. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have, that I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now this doesn't make sense. I mean, not only that, but it seems insensitive and very personal on Jesus' part. Like this doesn't make, this is not the typical response. This lady and Jesus are talking about water. They're talking about wells. And Jesus says, um, on a dime, he changes the conversation. Go get your husband. I mean, this is the most sensitive part of her life. This is the, the area of her life, no doubt, that she doesn't want anybody to know about. Doesn't want to ever have a discussion about. Doesn't want to ever talk about. This is the area of her life that she hopes will never be brought up again. And Jesus, out of the blue, disconnected from everything, it seems, brings up this exact subject, this exact topic. Go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five. You've gone through them one after another after another. And the guy you're with now is not your husband. What on earth is Jesus doing here? Jesus is saying, if you want to understand what I'm talking about, if you want to understand what it means to have living water, that I am offering to you this morning or this afternoon, you need to understand that you are already trying to find it. You are already digging wells and looking for this living water that only I can offer you. But you are looking for it in husbands. You are looking for it in men. You're already looking for it. Your soul is thirsty for water that only I can offer. And you're looking for it in men. One after another, after another, after another. You keep searching for satisfaction, for soul satisfaction. And it is only found in me. This morning, Jesus is saying that to you and to me as well. Because we look for this satisfaction, this soul satisfaction, in all kinds of things. We look for it in money. We look for it in physical fitness. We look for it in our jobs. We look for it in status. We look for it every way. Some people look for it in travel. We are looking for our soul to be satisfied. And Jesus says, if you look for it anywhere else, you're going to have to dig a well again because it will never be satisfied. You and I and this lady at the well will thirst again. But in me, Jesus says, in me, you'll never be thirsty again. Your soul will always be satisfied. Why? Because he loves us. Because he proved it. Because he never lets us down. Because he always knows what is best for us, for us and then brings about it in our lives. 
brings it about in our lives. He always knows what's best for us and then brings it about in our lives. He's always present. He has already secured eternity for those who would believe. He offers satisfaction for our soul, and it will never go looking for satisfaction again. Because we'll never thirst again if we look for it in Him. We'll never go searching for meaning. We'll never go searching to be uh, 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 wanted. We'll, ne we'll never go searching for, for satisfaction anywhere again because we will always be satisfied if we look for it in Him, Jesus says. We'll never wonder if our identity is safe. It's always safe in Him. If we look for the living water that he offers, and he offers it to this lady because she's already been digging wells to try to find it, he goes on. This woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You think? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She goes on, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where you worship." She tries to deflect. She actually is trying to. There's a a, a, a religious and a um, a political argument about where uh, worship should take place. The the Samaritans were relegated to Mount Gerizim, and their worship took place there. And the the, the Jews they worshipped in Jerusalem. And there was this political and religious argument. Where is real worship? Where does um, worship take place? Where should it take place? And so she's trying to change the subject. Uh, she wants to have a debate with him. But Jesus loves her way too much to allow that to happen. Look at how the story unfolds. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus says, soon, it's not going to matter where you worship. This debate about where worship should take place, in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim, is going to go away. It's going to be obsolete. Very, very soon, I am going to make that discussion moot. It's going away. It's not going to be a debate anymore. Instead, what's going to matter is if you worship the Father in spirit and truth. The, the, the Samaritans, um, when they were worshiping on Mount Gerizim, they only had the first five books of the Bible, or the Pentateuch. And, and their worship was in many ways heretical. They didn't worship the God of the Bible, but they got after it in worship. I mean, their, their hearts were drawn in, even though what they were worshiping was not the God of the Bible, not the Creator, not the Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who loved them. Even though their, their, their worship was in many ways heretical, they got after it. Their hearts were drawn in. Their emotions were drawn in to worship. They worshiped in spirit. The Jews, on the other hand, they worshiped in truth. Their... their um, Theology was solid. They had the whole Old Testament. They used the whole Old Testament to, to um, worship. They had very good and solid truth. But their worship was dry. It was dead. 
They, they had gloomy faces when they came in. And Jesus said, a day is coming very, very soon that we're going to take the, the, the uh, spirit of the Samaritans, the, the emotion of the Samaritans, and we're going to combine it with the truth of the Jews. And that is what worship is going to look like for the Father. When we, when we worship the Father, it's going to be this, this molding of, of spirit, just like the, the Samaritans, and truth, just like the Jews. And that is what gospel-centered worship is going to look like. Jesus said both will be incorporated together in worship. To worship in truth, it means that our worship is centered on Jesus, who declared himself to be truth. Truth is a person. When he, Jesus said in the New Testament, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is a person. And our worship is to be centered on Jesus. But the implications of that, I think, are pretty obvious. When we worship, we are to engage our minds. Part of worship means engaging our minds, using our brains. I love this. The Bible never tells us that when we come into worship, that we're to set our minds on the shelf and not think. We're to engage our minds. We're to, to, to take the things that we read in the scriptures. We're to take the things that are taught in sermons, things that are taught in Bible study. And we're to, we're to um, use our minds to see if indeed they are true. If they will withstand the weight of investigation. I'll never forget um, when I was a high school student. My Sunday school teacher was a guy by the name of Rich Anklin. And he's a friend of our family, a friend of my parents. And, and I actually grew up with his daughter, Barbara Jo. She was a friend of mine growing up. And today, uh, Mary Jo and I are still friends with her, with Barbara Jo and her husband, Justin. Dear friends, and, and still keep in contact with Rich Ancliffe, my, my high school um, a Sunday school teacher. Rich, one of the, the, the most brilliant guys that I've ever met before. He is currently today uh, the chief technologist at NASA. He works directly for the president of the United States. And if you don't like the current president, he worked for the last one too, all right? Rich has a PhD in physical chemistry from Georgia from the University of Georgia. He also has a degree from Harvard and he has taught at MIT. Um, all I'm saying is he's about as smart as I am, all right? <laughs> he used to always tell us in Sunday school, bring your Bibles and bring your minds. At the end of every week, he would say, next week I want you to bring your Bibles and I want you to bring your minds. It was the first time that nothing that the Bible taught was off limits for us. I mean, there was nothing that the Bible taught that he was scared to investigate. There was nothing that the Bible taught that he was scared to put weight on and see if it would withstand the pressure. Nothing was off limits for him. And we would, somebody would bring up something and he would say, you know what, we're going to investigate that. We're going to look at that. I want you to do a little bit of reading this week on that subject. I'm going to as well. And then the next week, we would spend two or three weeks just putting weight on anything and everything that the Bible taught. Is creation real? Somebody asked me after the last hour, what does he think about creation? Is it an old earth or a new earth? I said, I don't know. I didn't, even have the, I didn't have the right questions to ask back then. But there was nothing off limits. He would investigate anything that the Bible taught. Because he knew that it would withstand the pressure. He knew that it would it withstand the investigation. He knew that it would stand on its own. It could not. It would not be disproved. He also told us this. He said, science won't and can't disprove the Bible, but it can challenge us to interpret it correctly. I love that. 
Science can't disprove the Bible, but it can challenge us to interpret it correctly. We're told to worship in truth. We're told to bring our minds to worship. I love a good debate about the scriptures. Love it. I mean, I, that's one of the things that I really enjoy about homebrew. Every once in a while, somebody will throw something in, and then we get to investigate it. We get to talk about it. We get to discuss it. We get to debate it. So much fun. Love it. If you like a good debate, come on. We're to worship in truth. And the Bible over and over and over again has stood on its own. Has stood on its own merit. We worship in truth. We don't set our minds on the shelf when we come to worship. But that's not it. We also worship in spirit. And that means that we engage our emotions. We engage our hearts. There are some theological streams that are very good at this. In my opinion, at the expense of truth. But there are others that, that are all about truth, but they don't engage our hearts. They don't engage their hearts. They don't worship in spirit. Gospel-centered worship. Gospel-centered worship. Blends both. We bring our minds, but we bring our hearts. We use our brains, but we engage our emotions. We're not scared of emotions. They were given to us as a gift from the Creator. And we engage them in worship when we worship in spirit. Gospel-centered worship is worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know, verse 25, I I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This lady says, look, we're, we're debating all this stuff. You're, you're, you're making all these cool claims. But th when the Messiah shows up, he's going to straighten this all out. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. And he just did it. Because I'm him. Closes it out this way, just so there's no loose ends. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking to, with a woman. But no one said, who do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, <clears throat> see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Jump down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. He, uh, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for, uh, we have heard for ourselves. We know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Let me close with this story about a, a guy named Langdon Gilkey. He wrote a book called Shangtun Compound. Shangtun Compound. Gilkey is a, a 1940 graduate of Harvard, and uh, after he graduated, he went to China to uh, work and teach in a university, teach English in a university. Well, while he was there, Japan invaded China and took over the part of the, of the nation or the part of the country that, um, uh, that Gilkey lived in. They took Gilkey and all the Westerners, and they put him in a prison camp, Thousands of people in about one block, one city block, just on living on top of each other. It was a terrible, terrible place to live. 
People, there were stealing, there were, there were fights, there, there was selfishness. I mean, it was a terrible place to live. Well, Gilkey says that before this experience, he um, wasn't much of a religious guy. He said, religion's good for some people if you need that crutch, but I don't need it. Um, people, generally speaking, are, are good. They're, they're selfless. They look out for each other. They're reasonable. Uh, just generally speaking, people are okay. Now, for those that need religion, I'm good with that. I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. I just don't need that crutch, is what Gilkey said. Well, when he got put into this compound, his eyes were open to what people are really like. Gilkey says that when people are, are, are facing death, when their survival is at stake, they are unbelievably selfish. They look out for number one, and that is it. And it doesn't matter if you're educated or uneducated, if you're religious or you're irreligious or unreligious. Everybody that he came in contact with in this compound looked out for number one, and it opened his eyes. Now, it didn't open his eyes to, to religion because he saw people who claimed to be religious acting exactly like the secular people. It opened his eyes, though, to what human beings were really like. They looked out for number one, except for one man. One man by the name of Eric Little. You may recognize his name. He was a, 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 a Paris, 1924 Paris gold medal Olympian. He also was in the, the movie Chariots of Fire. But he was also a Presbyterian missionary. And Gilkey says that watching Eric Little was different than every other person in this compact. Here's what he said about Little. He said, it is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to be the same. But this man came as close to anyone as I have ever known to be just that. Gilkey said, everyone struggled with anger, selfishness, and pride, including himself. But Little was different. Little had an overflowing humor. He had a joy that was evident in his singing. He was constantly pouring himself, himself out for others in the camp, unlike anybody else who was there. Gilkey goes far as to say, we would scarcely have survived if it wasn't for this man. Unfortunately, Eric died of a brain tumor right before liberation took place. What made Eric Little different? Different from the educated and the uneducated, from the, from the religious and the unreligious. What made him different? Here's what Gilkey said. Religion is the place, oh, excuse me, religion is not the place where the problem of man's egotism is automatically solved. Rather, it is there that the ultimate battle of human pride and God's grace takes place. When human pride wins that battle, religion becomes one more way for man to sin with pride and self-righteousness. You see that? Religion just becomes another avenue for sin. When human pride wins out. But when a person surrenders to God's grace, this gift that Jesus was offering to the woman and to us, it may prove to be what the human race needs to release from itself centeredness. This was a man who wasn't just moral and religious. He lived his life 
in gospel-centered worship. And everybody else noticed that he was different. Gilkey goes in the, into the future. He, he, he actually gives his life to Christ. Because of Eric Little's example of gospel-centered worship. Worshiping in spirit and in truth. Let's be like him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that we, even this morning, would practice worshiping in spirit and in truth. That we would, every word that was said, we would put pressure on it and see if it holds up, see if it's true. And we would also worship in spirit. Even as we sing this morning, that we would engage our emotions with the Savior of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.